0: "Come on to my house my house, I'm gonna give you apple plum I forgot I do Come on my house." Welcome to the Time of Our Life," a special series from Valley Public Radio. I'm David Aus. In this series, award-winning journalist and author Mark Arax offers a special perspective on our times, viewed through the lens of writer William Soroyan. Each week, a valley writer reads work of Soroyan, and we discuss its relevance on our time. In this bonus episode, Mark Arax will read two Soroyan stories, Laughing Sam and The Poor and Burning Arab. Well, Mark Arax, great to have you back for one more bonus episode of Time of Our Life.
1: Hey, thanks, David. I was excited to hear we're going to do an episode seven, so I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, I am too. And the first story you're going to read for us tonight is Laughing Sam, which is a hard-to-find story from Soroyan. And it plays an important role, actually, in the genesis of this series.
1: Yeah, so um, it was three, four months ago uh, when my son came out of the bedroom after reading some Dostoevsky, and I said, man, you need to read something a little different here. You've been on a Dostoevsky jag. And so we pulled off the shelf a collection called Little Children, a little paperback with some swell Soroyan stories. And the first story was Laughing Sam. And I just sat in the kitchen. It was about midnight, one in the morning. And I read him this short story. And literally in the span of five pages, my son went from laughter to tears. And he got the bug, the Soroyan bug, and started reading Soroyan. And it was the next morning I thought, you know, if we could excite this kid about Soroyan, let's let's see if we could do a, a Soroyan read, because his voice was so perfect for the lockdown that we had in the early months of the pandemic. And so that was the, the rationale for this series. And Valley Public Radio just got it right away. So the idea was the urban roar had been turned into a whisper and we were living for these moments like, you know, what you're gonna cook that night. And kids like Soroyan were on their bicycles riding around town, never seen so many kids. So we had kind of returned to Soroyan time and that's where the series started. And then somewhere two thirds of the way through, the economy opened up again and the urban roar came back and we kept reading. And now we're somewhere in this weird place where the pandemic is spiking up and yet you listen outside and you hear the urban roar, but you still see kids riding their bikes. So it's kind of this weird tweener, but it all got inspired by that, that night reading laughing Sam to Jake.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and listen to Mark Eric's reading Laughing Sam right now.
1: Laughing Sam by
0: William Soy. There
1: was a boy in my hometown 15 years ago who was called Laughing Sam because he was always laughing. He was one of those extremely sensitive boys who, being afraid of everything in the world, tried to laugh at everything and get into all kinds of trouble. He couldn't do anything without doing it, at least partly wrong. A lot of boys in my hometown died before they were 20, and Sam was one of these boys, but he even died wrong. And for all I know, maybe he was laughing at the time, or at least till he realized he was being killed by the elevator. The elevator crushed him. He was scared to death of elevators, so he was showing off to people he hated, who were always making fun of him. And he slipped and fell, and the elevator smashed his body. He was 16 years old at the time. I knew him about four years. I saw him for the first time coming down the cement stairs to the press room of the Evening Herald, with Buzz Martin, old Buzz Martin, who was the circulation manager and a good amateur fighter and very goosey, who was killed in an audible meal accident in 1924 or 1925 at the age of 27. He told Sam to wait somewhere till the home edition came off the press and Sam began to wait as if waiting were an event of great activity. He kept looking around fearfully at all the newsboys, the Italians and Russians and Armenians, and he began looking at the big black press. And little by little, he began to be panic-stricken. I was nine or ten, and he was a year or two older, but I could tell what was going on. He was just another poor boy in the world, the wrong kind, too. I knew he'd have a lousy time of it all the time. I felt bad about him and wished I could think of something to say to him, but I couldn't. I wanted to say, now wait, take it easy. Don't get excited. Don't let it scare you. There's nothing to it. Take it easy. I couldn't say anything though. I saw a flash of something like horror and agony in his eyes. And then I figured he'd start to cry. He laughed instead. He was some sort of Eastern European, small and tense. He had a big beak, thick black hair, not much of a forehead, skin full of blackheads, thick lips, and uncommonly foolish looking ears. He was the ugliest looking boy i had ever seen. And yet there was something tragic and noble about his face and his figure too, for that matter. Tragic and noble and pathetic. His arms were short, his fingers were stubby. He had no shoulders at all and he had very big feet. It was July and he was without shoes as all of us were. Seeing him for the first time, one felt, here is a man. Here is the poor agonized body of the ancient slave, undernourished, overworked, ill, wounded, graceless, foolish. Here is the body of our Lord outraged by the world. I didn't talk to him that first day. I was a little afraid of him, not of the boy himself, but of what he seemed to be, the victim of the world, the helpless, guiltless inheritor of centuries of mortal cruelty and error. But I watched him. He was obviously lost, completely out of place, not simply out of place in the press room, but out of place in the world, in time, and space, in history, in life. He seemed to be haunted by an instinctive tribal remembrance in his blood. Get away, get out of it, go to another place, run high, do not stay among them, they will kill you. I heard him try to talk to Buzz Martin. Well, he couldn't talk. I mean, he didn't stutter, but when his lips and mouth began to shape a word, they became paralyzed, and you could see him trying to say the word, but you couldn't hear anything. Where shall I wait, he asked Buzz Martin. Buzz Martin was a great guy. He was tough. He used to cuff the boys around when they got out of line, but he was a great guy, and he never took advantage of a scared kid. He was an American as we used to call them in my hometown. But he wasn't like most Americans. In my hometown 15 years ago, an American was an incompetent who despised people of other races because they weren't incompetent. Buzz Martin, he was okay. He took the broader view. He didn't care what happened. He didn't care what you happened to be. Just so you were okay. And if you weren't, he didn't blame it on your race. He just put you in your place with a clout on the ear. So Buzz wasn't unkind to the boy, although he was a little bewildered by the boy's question. Just wait right where you're standing, he said. Don't go anywhere. The home edition will be out in about five minutes, and I'll give you 10 papers and tell you where to holler. Sam laughed and stood right where he was. He began looking around for somebody to talk to and picked out Nick Chorus, the Greek boy. He said, how do you sell papers? Then laughed. Chorus said, I don't know, and didn't laugh. Chorus was probably the most melancholy newsboy in town. He hated everything and everybody, and every now and then, we used to see him crying for no reason at all. I ain't never sold papers, Sam said. Do I have to holler? He laughed again. Cora said no. Do you holler, Sam said? He laughed very much, and chorus looked terrible. Yes, Cora said. How do you do it, Sam said. I just open my mouth and holler, chorus said. What do you holler, Sam said? paper 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 yes Cora said paper 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 evening herald evening herald and whatever the news is i never sold paper sam said my mother said we need money ha 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 so i came down here do you make much money no Cora said do you make any money at all sam said If you sell two papers, Cora said, you make a nickel. For every two papers you sell, you make a nickel. How many do you think I could sell if I try hard, Sam said? Ten, maybe. Ten, Cora said. That's 25 cents, ain't it, Sam said? Yes, Cora said. Then the press began to work, and Sam said, Look, ha-ha, ha-ha-ha. What's the matter, Curris said. Ha ha, ha ha, Sam said. Look at it. The headline that day was about the war. Buzz Martin gave Sam 10 papers and told him to holler the headline, Allies Make Big Advance. We got our papers and ran to town. I had the post office corner. The better you were at hustling, the better the corner they gave you. My corner was sixth from best. If you were new, they told you to walk all over town and do the best you could. Sam, Sam didn't walk all over town. He ran and kept it up for hours. He was out to make good. He wanted to be a good hustler. He wanted to please Buzz Martin and the publishers of the Evening Herald. And he wanted to take home a little money to his mother. They needed money badly, so he wanted to sell his papers and take home a few coins. He was hollering and laughing and running around town as if he had to get somewhere just in the nick of time. He was funny and nobody could resist the temptation to have a little fun with him. The Italian kids got a big kick out of asking him questions and hearing him answer and laugh And after a while, they got a big kick out of pushing him over backwards and hearing him laugh. And they couldn't figure it out. They figured he'd either get sore and fight or cry. But all he did was laugh. Then they took down his pants and smeared him with press ink and again, Sam laughed. The Italian kids didn't know what to make of it. He stood at the center of a crowd of crazy kids and tried to get the ink off. And he said, you put ink on me, ha, 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 ha. It won't come off. I felt terrible because I could tell how deeply hurt he was and horrified and how anxious he was to get along. For a week, everybody got a big kick out of Sam. But after a week, the novelty of his laughter wore away and gradually his laughter began to be irritating. It wasn't right to laugh about everything. One day, coming down the cement steps in a hurry, he stumbled and fell and was hurt and everybody ran over to him, wanting to help him, even the toughest of the kids, wanting to be kind to him. And although his coat was torn and his arm was bleeding, he jumped up, and began to laugh. I fell downstairs, he said, ha, 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 ha. Even the dullest of the boys resented his laughter about it. What the hell's the matter with him? They began to ask, and after a while, nobody would go near him or talk to him, and he was all alone in the press room. He used to come down every day and try to be friendly, but he couldn't talk very well. And he was always laughing. One day, the headline was about a collision on the highway at night. Five people killed, two of them kids and three injured. He went around town hollering the headline and laughing. He went tearing around the corner, hollering, five killed in highway accidents. Ha, 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 ha. I stopped him. I neither liked nor disliked him. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't like him, but it was impossible to dislike him too. He wasn't simply another newsboy. He was man on earth at his worst, taking everything and laughing about it. Wait a minute, I said, that's nothing to laugh about. He came to a sudden inward halt. I ain't laughing, he said. Then. I knew what the hell was going on. He wasn't laughing. It sounded like laughing, but he was crying. His heart was breaking about everything, and he was crying. He was doing it by laughing. Listen, I said. You're not glad then people were killed, are you? He tried very hard to stop smiling. No, he said. You're sorry, ain't you, I said. I'm sorry, all right, he said. That's all I want to know, I said. He ran on down the street, and I almost busted into tears. He sold papers until he was 15. Then he got a job in the warehouse of a van and storage company, eight or $9 a week. I don't know what he was supposed to do in the warehouse but I suppose every once in a while, he was supposed to operate the freight elevator. I guess the other workers made him do it because he was so afraid of the contraption, and I guess he did it to try to get along. I guess he laughed too. I didn't know just how it happened, but one day I read in the Evening Herald that he was smashed by the elevator and instantly killed. Everybody said it was his own fault. He got panic-stricken because the elevator didn't stop where it was supposed to stop, and the other workers were laughing at him, and he tried to get out of the elevator while it was moving, and he didn't quite make it. He lived 16 years in this world and laughed all the time. He wept. From the beginning of his life, 10 centuries ago, to the end of it,
0: 15 years ago. That was Mark Arax reading the William Soroyan story, Laughing Sam, and this is Time of Our Life on Valley Public Radio. In preparation for this episode, we were talking about this story, and you were saying that Laughing Sam is kind of the story of a kid betrayed by language.
1: I'm not sure that's the accurate way to say it, but this is a kid who didn't have a real capacity for language, maybe because of confidence, maybe because of, you know, the way he was raised or something that got passed in the DNA. And so he filled up that empty space with laughter and it was inappropriate laughter. It was tragic laughter. Right. And there is the same kind of thread that runs through the poor and burning Arab.
0: Right, which is the the next story that we're going to consider and have you read. When I read this story in preparation, one thing I noticed is that there's a place mentioned, Arox Coffee House. So I was wondering if that was a connection to your family. Could you tell us about that?
1: I don't know that we ever owned a coffee house. And when we opened up our grocery stores, we called them Peacock Markets. But Arox, yes, is our last name. I think I explained in one of the earlier episodes that Arax was a pen name. My grandfather had taken that name as a poet back in Istanbul, Turkey. Arax was the mother river that came down from Mount Ararat. So um, Arax as a surname, I've only met our family having that surname, but businesses once in a while owned by Armenians would use the word Aroks uh, because it was thought to be lucky. So I'm sure there was an Arax coffee house in Fresno there was an Arox market in Fresno. So I think that explains that, that use of that word. But it was, it, was, it was neat to read that story again. I'd forgotten and see our last name popping up in it.
0: That, that must have been fun for you. So how did you come to pick this last story that we're going to hear, The Poor and Burning Arab?
1: I picked it because Soroyan told me as a kid that, um, you know, that fancy words were not the, not the way to go if you were a writer. And I think I mentioned in an earlier episode, he told me, count the words I use, 300 words, 300 words. And this is a story about two men from the old country who don't use words to communicate. They sit in a parlor, they drink some coffee, smoke some cigarettes, and their presence with each other is its own language. And I thought that was an interesting counterpoint, or maybe a related point, to Laughing Sam, who also had trouble or didn't find it necessary. Well, he had more trouble with talking, and then filled the air, not with silence, but with laughter. So I thought the two stories worked well together. I also think that, you know, our series began with the the collection, My Name is Aram, the story, The Summer of the Beautiful White Horse,
0: that's right. Mm-hmm. We, we have recurring characters here Aram, of course, uh, yes. his, his cousin Morad, and of course, Uncle Kosrov.
1: Uncle Kosrov, who had the fiercest, uh, the fiercest mustache in the San Joaquin Valley.
0: Let's listen now as Mark Arax reads William Saroyan's The Poor and Burning Arab.
1: The Poor and Burning Arab
0: by William Saroyan.
1: My Uncle Kosrov himself a man of furious energy and uncommon sadness, had for a friend one year, a small man from the old country who was as still as a rock inwardly, whose sadness was expressed by brushing a speck of dust from his knee and never speaking. This man was an Arab named Khalil. He was no bigger than a boy of eight, but, like my uncle Kosrov, had a very big mustache. He was probably in his early 60s. In spite of his mustache, however, he impressed one as being closer to a child in heart than to a man. His eyes were the eyes of a child, but seemed to be full of years of remembrance, years and years, being separated from things deeply loved as perhaps his native land, his father, his mother, his brother, his horse, or something else. The hair on his head was soft and thick and as black as black ever was and parted on the left side the way small boys who had just reached America from the old country were taught by their parents to part their hair. His head was, in fact, the head of a schoolboy, except for the mustache, and so was his body, except for the broad shoulders. He could speak no English, only a little Turkish, a few words of Kurdish, and only a few of Armenian. But he hardly spoke anyway. When he did, he spoke in a voice that seemed to come not so much from himself as from the old country. He spoke also as if he regretted the necessity to do so, as if it were pathetic for one to try to express what could never be expressed, as if anything he might say would only add to the sorrow already existing in himself. How he won the regard of my uncle Kosroff, a man who had to say something at least, is a thing none of us ever learned. Little enough is learned from people who are always talking, let alone from people who hardly ever talk, except as in the case of my uncle Kosroff, to swear or demand that someone else stop talking. My uncle Kosrov probably met the Arab at the Arak's coffee house. My uncle Kosroff picked his friends and enemies from the way they played tavli, which in this country is known as backgammon. Games of any sort are tests of human behavior under stress. And even though my uncle Kosroff himself was probably the worst loser in the world, he despised any other man who lost without grace. What are you grieving about he would shout at such a loser it's a game isn't it did you lose your life with it he himself lost his life when he lost the game but it was inconceivable to him that anyone else might regard the symbols of the game as profoundly as he did to the others the game was only a game as far as he was concerned to himself however the game was destiny over a board on a table with an insignificant man across the table, rattling the dice, talking to them in Turkish, coaxing them, whispering, shouting, and in many other ways, humiliating himself. My uncle Kosrov, on the other hand, despised the dice, regarded them as his personal enemies, and never spoke to them. He threw them out the window or across the room and pushed the board off the table. The dogs, he would shout. And then, pointing furiously at his opponent, he would shout, And you, my own countrymen, you are not ashamed. You debase yourself before them. You pray to them. I am ashamed for you. I spit on the sons of dogs. Naturally, no one ever played a game of Tavli with my uncle Kosro twice. This coffeehouse was a place of great fame and importance in its day. In this day, it is the same, although many have died who went there 20 years ago. For the most part, the place was frequented by Armenians, but others came too. All who remembered the old country. All who loved it. All who had played Tavli and the card games in the old country, all who enjoyed the food of the old country, the wine and the Rahi, and the small cups of coffee in the afternoon, all who loved the songs and the stories, and all who liked to be in a place with a familiar smell thousands of miles from home. Most of the time, my uncle Kosrov reached this place around three in the afternoon. He would stand a moment looking over the men and then sit down in a corner, alone. He usually sat an hour without moving and then would go away, terribly angry, although no one had said a word to him. Poor little ones, he would say, poor little orphans, or literally, poor and burning orphans poor and burning, it's impossible to translate this one. Nothing, however, is more sorrowful than the poor and burning in life and in the world. Most likely, sitting in this coffee house one day, my uncle Khosrof noticed the little Arab and knew him to be a man of worth. Perhaps the man had been seated, playing tavli, his broad shoulders over the board, his child's head somber and full of understanding and regret. And perhaps after the game, my uncle Kostrov had seen him get up and stand, no bigger than a child. It may even be that the man came to the coffee house and not knowing my uncle Kostrov, played a game of toddly with him and lost, and did not complain, and in fact, understood who my uncle Kosroff was without being told. It may even be that the Arab did not pray to the dice. Whatever the source of their friendship, whatever the understanding between the two, and whatever the communion they shared, they were at any rate together, occasionally in our parlor, and welcome. The first time my uncle Kostrov brought the Arab to our house, he neglected to introduce him. My mother assumed that the Arab was a countryman of ours, perhaps a distant cousin, although he was a little darker than most of the members of our tribe and smaller, which of course was no matter, nothing more than the charm of a people, the variety the quality which made them human and worthy of further extension in time. The Arab sat down that first day only after my mother had asked him a half dozen times to be at home. Was he deaf, she thought? No, it was obvious that he could hear. He listened so intently. Perhaps he didn't understand our dialect. My mother asked what city he was from. He did not reply except to brush dust from the sleeve of his coat. Then, in Turkish, my mother said, are you an Armenian? This the Arab understood. He replied in Turkish that he was an Arab. A poor and burning little orphan, my uncle Kosovo whispered. For a moment, my mother imagined that the Arab might wish to speak, but it was soon obvious that, like my uncle Kosrof, nothing grieved him more than to do so. He could, if necessary, speak, but there was simply nothing in all all truth to say. My mother took the two men tobacco and coffee and motioned to me to leave. They want to talk, she said, talk, I said. They want to be alone, she said. I sat at the table in the dining room and began turning the pages of a year-old copy of the Saturday Evening Post that I knew by heart, especially the pictures. Jello, very architectural, automobiles with high-toned people standing around, flashlights flashing into dark places, tables set with bowls of soup steaming, young men in fancy ready-made suits and coats and all sorts of other pictures. I must have turned the pages a little too quickly, however. My Uncle Kosov shouted, Quiet, boy, quiet. I looked into the parlor just in time to see the Arab brushing dust from his knee. The two men sat in the parlor an hour, and then the air breathed very deeply through his nose, and without a word, left the house. I went into the parlor and sat where he had sat. What is his name, I said. Quiet, my uncle Kostrov said. Well, what is his name, I said. My uncle Kostrov was so irritated, he didn't know what to do. He called out to my mother, as if he were being murdered. Mariam, he shouted, Mariam. My mother hurried into the parlor. What is it, she said. Send him away, please, my uncle Kosovo said. What is the matter? He wants to know the Arab's name. Well, all right, my mother said. He's a child, he's curious, tell him. I see, my uncle Kostrov groaned. You too, my own sister my own poor and burning little sister. Well, what is the Arab's name, my mother said. I won't tell, my Uncle Kosrov said. That's all, I won't tell. He got up and left the house too. He doesn't know the man's name, my mother explained, and you've got no business irritating him. Three days later, when my Uncle Kosroff and the Arab came to our house, I was in the parlor. My uncle Kosarov came straight to me and said, his name is Khalil, now go away. I left the house and waited in the yard for one of my cousins to arrive. After 10 minutes, nobody arrived. So I went to my cousin Murad's house and spent an hour arguing with him about which of us would be the stronger in five years. We wrestled three times and I lost three times. But once, I almost won. When I got home, the two men were gone. I ran straight to the parlor from the back of the house, but they weren't there. The only thing in the room was their smell and the smell of tobacco smoke. What did they talk about? I asked my mother. I didn't listen, my mother said. Did they talk at all? I said. I don't know, my mother said. They didn't, I said. Some people talk when they have something to say, my mother said, and some people don't. How can you talk if you don't say anything, I said. You can talk without words. We are always talking without words. Well, what good are words then? Not very good most of the time, she said. Most of the time, they're only good to keep back what you really want to say or something you don't want known. Well, do they talk, I said. I think they do, my mother said. They just sit and sip coffee and smoke cigarettes. They never open their mouths, but they're talking all the time. They understand one another and don't need to open their mouths. They have nothing keep back. Do they really know what they're talking about, I said. Of course, my mother said. Well, what is it, I said. I can't tell you, my mother said, because it isn't in words, but they know. For a year, my uncle Kosroff and the Arab came to our house every now and then and sat in the parlor. Sometimes they sat an hour, sometimes too. Once my uncle Khosrow suddenly shouted at the Arab, pay no attention to it, I tell you. Although the Arab had said nothing, but most of the time nothing at all was said until it was time for them to go. Then my uncle Khosrow would say quietly, the poor and burning orphans, and the Arab would brush dust from his knee. One day, when my uncle Kostrov came to our house alone, I realized that the Arab had not visited our house in several months. Where's the Arab, I said. What Arab, my uncle Kostrov said. That poor and burning little Arab that used to come here with you, I said. Where is he? Mariam, my uncle Kostrov shouted. was standing, terrified. Oh, oh, I thought, what's wrong now? What have I done now? Mariam, he shouted, Mariam! My mother came into the parlor. What is it, she said. If you please, my uncle Kosrov said, he is your son. You are my little sister. Please send him away. I love him with all my heart. He is an American. He was born here. He will be a great man someday. I have no doubt about it. Please send him away. Why? What is it, my mother said. What is it? What is it? He talks. He asks questions. I love him. Aram, my mother said. I was standing too. And if my uncle Khosrok was angry at me, I was angrier at him. Where is the Arab, I said. My uncle Kosroff pointed me out to my mother with despair. There you are, his gesture said. Your son, my nephew, my own flesh and blood. You see, we are all poor and burning orphans, all except him. Aram, my mother said. Well, if you don't talk, I said, I can't understand where is the Arab. My uncle kosrov left the house without a word. The Arab is dead, my mother said. When did he tell you, I said. He didn't tell me, my mother said. Well, how did you find out, I said. I don't know, my mother said, but he is dead. My uncle kosrov didn't visit our house again for many days. For a while, I thought he would never come back. When he came at last, he stood in the parlor with his hat on his head and said, The Arab is dead. He died an orphan in an alien world, 6,000 miles from home. He wanted to go home and die. He wanted to see his sons again. He wanted to talk to them again. He wanted to smell them. He wanted to hear them breathing. He had no money. He used to think about them all the time. Now he is dead. Now, go away. I love you. I wanted to ask some more questions, especially about the Arab sons, how many there were, how long he had been away from them, and so on. I decided I would rather visit my cousin Murad and see if I couldn't hold him down now. So I went away without saying a word, which most likely pleased my Uncle Kostrov very much and made him feel maybe there was some hope for me after all.
0: That was Mark Erex reading The Poor and Burning Arab. Boy, Mark, what a great way to end a bonus episode of this series of The Time of Our Life. Thanks so much. It's been great doing this with you.
1: Thanks so much. Valley Public Radio, man, you know, giving us your time and and giving us the uh, the air time to do it. It's been really special. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mark.
0: Come on to my house. This has been The Time of Our Life. In case you're wondering about our theme music, it was composed by Fresno native Ross Bagdasarian and his first cousin and lifelong friend, William Saroyan. The melody is based on an Armenian folk song. Big thanks to Mark Rx for his collaboration in this series. Thanks also to Alice Daniel and the Valley Public Radio news team. And special thank you to Mimi Coulter and Stanford Libraries for granting us permission to broadcast these stories. For Valley Public Radio, I'm David Owens. ¶ Come out of my house, my house ¶ I'm gonna give you everything, everything, everything ¶ Come out of my house ¶